St. James's midweek Lent service. Glad that you're here with us. Uh, just again, if there's any technical glitches, uh, just hang with us. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, which I believe all of you are, uh, go ahead and subscribe to this so you can get notifications when, whenever we have our services. Our next service will be this Sunday at our normal service time at nine o'clock, and please feel free to join us then. Let's begin worshiping. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. Amen. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to herald Your love in the morning, Your truth at the close of the day. Let's confess our sins to God. Almighty God, our Maker and Redeemer, we poor sinners confess unto You that we are by nature sinful and unclean, and that we've sinned against You in thought, word, and deed. Wherefore, we flee for refuge to Your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring Your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, who has given Your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for Jesus' sake, grant us remission of all our sins. And by Your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of You and of Your will and true obedience to Your Word to the end that by Your grace we may come to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The psalm reading for tonight is Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love. According to Your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, 
and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The epistle reading is from Romans chapter 3. And I just want to point out that in verse 4, if you're following along at home, in verse 4 of Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes verse 4 from Psalm 51 that we just read. Paul says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or of what is the value of circumcision? Much, in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it's written, and here he quotes from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to His glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Psalm 51, uh, so as uh, some of you know who've been uh, following along with us, we've been looking at the penitential psalms and uh, talking about confession and forgiveness. Uh, Psalm 51, of course, is the most famous of all the penitential psalms. It's the psalm that David wrote after he was convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sin of murdering his friend Uriah and stealing his wife Bathsheba. And Psalm 51 is one of those, I guess we could do this with all the penitential psalms, but if you've been here uh, through Lent with us the past couple years, uh, you'll remember that we spent a couple years ago going through Psalm 22. Uh, Last year we went through Isaiah 53. Psalm 51 is one of those that we could spend every Bible study during Lent focusing just on this psalm. It's so good, and there's so much in here. But tonight, we don't have that much time, so I'm going to focus on just one verse, and that's verse 4. I'm going to read up to verse 4 again. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now focus here on verse 4 with me. Against you, he's talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let me make a quick caveat here real quick. 
And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say about sin. The Bible is super clear from the very beginning to the very end that sin is an alien intruder. That sin is not the way that God designed the world to work. It's not normal. It's in many ways unnatural. Now, because we've fallen and because we have our parents, Adam and Eve, sinful nature, we talk about human nature as though it's sinful, but we were not created by God to be sinful. And it's God came to earth to die to get rid of this sin. So don't misunderstand me and think that I'm making light of sin in any way. But there's another smaller theme in Scripture. We ask the question, like, why is sin there? One of the answers is the answer of Psalm 51 verse 4. So that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. One of the lesser known functions of sin, our sin, is that it justifies God. It's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? For a lot of us, those of you, uh, those of you who are a part of uh, the Reformation tradition, uh, we're used to thinking of ourselves as the ones who are in need of justification. We're the ones who are on trial. But here in Psalm 51.4, David imagines God being on trial. It's God who's justified in his words. This is a little bit strange, um, but it's actually becoming more, more and more normal as time goes on. It's strange for, like I said, it's strange for a lot of us to think of God on trial. But it's actually becoming more and more normal in our postmodern world to think of God as someone who needs to justify his existence to us. And most of us struggle with both of these things. Most of us struggle with knowing that we are on trial in front of God, those of, us, those of you who are Christians. And even for those of you who are Christians, sometimes the temptation is to think of God being on trial, as though God needs to justify himself to us. To make, God needs to make apology for his existence. He needs to convince us that he's real and should be obeyed. There's a great essay by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. And if you're not familiar with what that means, uh, in the British legal system, the courtroom scene, uh, you have the judge who sits on a bench up above the courtroom, and you have the defense on one side, and you have the prosecution on the other side. And then on a raised platform in a kind of a box, uh, you have the prisoner sitting. Uh, not the prisoner, but the defendant sitting throughout the duration of the trial. And in this essay, God in the Dock, by which he means that in our culture now, God is the one who's on trial. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm going to give you a little quote here. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge, with this sort of notion that I'm on trial and I need to argue to God why I should be justified, why I should be forgiven, why I should be allowed to live. For the modern man... Now, at this time, we can actually probably say the postmodern man, the roles are reversed, Lewis says. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. Now, the postmodern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, if God can make a good argument for why he does those things, a good argument being one that convinces us, well, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal if he's lucky enough. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. But here in Psalm 51, David will play along with that. Okay, let God be on the bench. How is he going to get justified? How is God going to prove himself not guilty to us? It's not going to be by making sense to us, but it's going to be by, check this out, it's going to be by our sin. It's our sin 
that justifies God. It's kind of interesting, right? Within, our, within uh, Christian theology, it's God's righteousness that justifies us. And now David is saying the flip side is that it's our sin that justifies God. Let me read verse 4 again one more time. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When you think about your sins individually, the temptation is to think of them as, well, it's not that big of a deal, right? I lose my temper because I'm tired. I got upset when I got cut off in traffic because it's been a long day. Uh, I'm kind of lazy, but everybody else in the office is kind of lazy too. I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, Sure, I struggle with lust, but say la vie, right? I mean, we all kind of have problems with lust. But I guess in a certain sort of sense, it's easy to see these things as, well, that's not that big of a deal. I'm really not hurting too many people. But if you look at your life across the aggregate, I know that if I look at the compilation of the moments of my days, it's hard to argue that I'm anything less than a complete screw-up, that my decisions are all broken, that my motives are all too often frequently selfish, that my reactions to problems are hardly ever constructive and almost always destructive. How can I, knowing who I am, objectively, looking at myself in the mirror and knowing exactly the way that I am, how can I possibly think of myself as the judge that God needs to justify himself to? It's clear, I think, that I'm on trial. It's my sin that takes God off of the dock and puts him on the bench and puts me in the dock. Our postmodernism makes this hard, too, like I was saying, because we're used to thinking of ourselves as the sovereign judge of all the things in our existence. And we resent anybody, God, our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, our boss. We resent anybody telling us how to live our lives. That God has a right to judge us, that God has a right to be on the bench, and that we are by nature supposed to be, by human nature, supposed to be in the dock, is something that's hard for us to swallow. I teach uh, history of Western civilization and comparative religions at our local community college. And um, I assigned papers, small papers, throughout the course of the semester. And I realized uh, when I first started, I was getting a lot of responses about the papers that I was assigning. And after I would assign the grade, uh, when they finished writing them, I was getting a lot of conversations with students who would come up to me and would say something like, hey, why did I get a C on this? I... I don't really think I deserve a C. And I would look at the paper and I would say, well, uh, you know, you wrote the paper on, uh, pick a topic, you wrote the paper on Egyptian art and you didn't mention the Narmer uh, Palette. And if anybody who writes about Egyptian art, I mean, you ought to mention the Narmer Palette. Uh, well, they will say, uh, yeah, I mean, but I really worked hard at this and I put a lot of effort into this paper and I think I deserve more than a C. And I would say, well, I'm not really... I'm not saying that you didn't work hard at it. Uh, you just didn't mention this one thing. I said, well, I mean, but this is what, this is, these were my thoughts. I'm giving you genuinely, this was, I put myself into this paper. This is genuinely my paper. It didn't take me long to realize that the issue wasn't the Narmer Palette. The issue wasn't even like a, getting a C versus a B. Uh, the fundamental issue was the students questioning my right to even assign a grade as a fellow human being. And when I realized that, it made the conversations easy. Uh, I several times had a conversation with a student saying, look, I mean, this is just the role that we're in right now. I'm the, I'm, it's not that I'm smarter than you, but I'm the teacher in this class, and I have to assign a grade. I have to. It's the system. It's, it's the way it works. That's the way it is. 
What occurred to me when this was happening often enough is this, this is frequently the way I act towards God. I, it's not even that I resent the fact that he has the right to judge me. It's not even that I resent the fact that he has the right to decide what's right and wrong. I just resent that there's anybody who's judging me, anybody who's deciding what's right and wrong. And honestly, I talk to a lot of Christians who talk like this. I've had lots of conversations with Christians who will say something along the lines of, look, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I read my Bible and I pray, but I just can't go along with this stuff that the Bible says about human sexuality. I mean, what is it, the 1950s? And what they're really saying is this, is I'll believe in Christianity as long as it fits in my own scheme, as long as it can make a good defense to my own presuppositions and ideas about what makes a good religion. But actually, God's in the dock. God has to justify himself to me. And to the extent that he can justify himself to me, I'm cool with him. But if he can't, I just can't go there. What we're seeing here in Psalm 51 is, in light of our sin and in light of his holiness, we're actually the ones in the dock. If he's God, he's God And he gets to decide what's right and wrong. And what he decides is wrong is us. That's what the last line of verse 4 says. He's blameless in his judgment. He has looked at us as sinners and said, you are unrighteousness. And in fact, our sin justifies who he is as God. And David is making the same point in Romans chapter 3. If you can flip over there with me. When he's quoting Psalm 51, this is what he's saying. He says in uh, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? What if some people are sinful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true in every one of us a liar. As it's written, Psalm 51, 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? We don't sit in judgment. We don't get to decide if he's righteous or unrighteousness. If he's God, whatever he does is right. And so Paul says, by no means. God is always right. And we are always wrong. And the first step of confession and forgiveness is to say this, to confess along with God that He is always right. No questions asked. And we are always wrong. No questions asked. Well, then what hope do we have? If He's always right and we in our sin are always wrong, where does that leave us? And for Paul, the answer is this. Verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The faithfulness of God. When we talk about God's righteousness, here's what we mean. God is faithful. God stays faithful to the covenant. You see, righteousness is not something that God gives us. I'm I'm more and more convinced, the more I read Romans, that this is the case. The righteousness of God is not something he gives us. The righteousness of God is something he is towards us. The righteousness of God is about relationship. Look, we broke relationship. God entered into covenant with us and said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and this is how I want you to act. And we didn't act that way. We broke the covenant. And by rights, we should be kicked out of the covenant. But God stays in the covenant and he keeps the covenant intact by himself taking upon himself the penalties of covenant faithlessness by being faithful. I've seen this happen a lot in marriages. A marriage broken, shattered, beyond all hope, will somehow survive 
And the way that God makes this marriage just survive is by giving the faithful partner the grace in Jesus Christ to be faithful to a partner who's not being faithful to them. I've seen this happen with kids. Parents will have kids turn their back on the family, turn their back on the things that they've learned, turn their back on what they know and what they've been taught as youth is right. But the parents will stay faithful, as difficult as it is. The parents will carry the sins of their children on their own shoulders, not abandon that family relationship, but stay faithful to it. And God will use that faithfulness to that covenant to rescue them. That's exactly what Jesus did to us. By rights, Jesus, sitting on the bench, had every right to say to us in the dock, out, you're on trial, you're guilty, you're convicted. But instead, he climbs into the dock and he takes our faithlessness on his own faithful shoulders and by taking the penalty, keeps the covenant intact. That's the kind of God we have. And the first step of confession is to climb up into the dock and say, I'm completely wrong. You're completely right. Don't be afraid. Our God is not going to judge you. Counterintuitively, by confessing that we're completely guilty, He will, through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and as we read in Romans chapter 3, through the redemption through that blood, He will count us as not guilty. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that You would use this good word from Psalm 51 to convict us of our sins, to convict us that You are right all the time and that we are the wrong ones. And by doing so, by allowing ourselves to be in the dock, by allowing You to be on the bench, to be the judge, that we would find out what it is to have such a merciful judge, such a faithful judge, such a covenant-keeping judge, willing to die Himself to preserve the covenant to acquit us, to restore us to the family. I pray that you would open our eyes to that all the time, but especially tonight. We also pray as we have the past few services uh, for everything that's going on as this virus uh, does not look like it's peaked yet and is going to be getting worse. I want to pray especially tonight for the people who are watching, uh, some members of our congregation who are in the medical profession, doctors and nurses, and that you would keep them safe. They have no choice but to stand faithfully on the front lines of this fight. We pray that you would keep them healthy, that you would preserve them from the danger that they're facing every day, and that you would allow them to serve in your name, that you would allow them in the name of the good physician to bring healing to people that they come in contact with. We pray that you would allow that for your own glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In righteousness I shall see you. When I awake, your presence will give me joy. Be present, merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of life may find our rest in you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And now let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. You can pray along in your heart, or if you'd like to pray out loud wherever you're at, that would be great too. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and preserve you. Amen. True.